We'll say our prayer to the Holy Spirit for the last time. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirits, and they shall be created. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, we come to our last talk, which is in a way outside the retreat and kind of summing up. And I want to squash in, if I can, four more saints who I should have mentioned earlier. But the whole theme of the retreat has been holiness, and we go back to Cardinal Newman's thought that without this, you will not see the Lord. And so we've got a real challenge ahead of us, and I do hope that through the different saints I've mentioned so far, you'll feel that there's some line along which I can work. My last talk then will be about three very extraordinary saints, and I want to end, if I can, with St. Monica and St. Augustine because they all throw a light on the theme. I would like to thank the two kind people, they'll be divorced if there are any more retreats like this again, who've been sitting there day after day taking down all of my talks. Makes a great difference, and Father Brady has already got labels on and is editing them so that the tapes will come out. And I would like to send greetings from all of us here to the listeners, whoever they may be in any part of the world. Who knows where the tapes will go? That rests with God chiefly and also Father Brady. <clears throat> and you never know, in ten years' time I may still be alive and my heart will sink when somebody will say, I heard those awful tapes you made um, um, on the Potomac. <laughs> well, it's been a great joy, and my last thing is a verse of Cardinal Newman's that he wrote when he was a young parson at the age of 24. He went to Rome, determined not to be a Catholic or to even go into a Catholic church. So much did he dislike Rome. But he went around the classical buildings of Rome and he only talked to one Catholic, I think, Cardinal, the future Cardinal Wiseman, in his visit. But he went out to the place where St. Paul died and where St. Paul was beheaded, and then he wrote a verse which runs like this, it's only two and a half lines, did we but see when life first opened how our journey lay between its earliest and its closing day. It's not a very distinguished verse, but the thought behind it is very great. Did we but see when life first opened how our journey lay between its earliest and its closing day. And what's interesting with the saints, I find, is that some of them, their life was turned completely upside down in the course of their, that space between their babyhood and their death. In fact, most of them were, had a tremendous upsets on the way. And so will we, and I bet many people sitting here now would say, little did I know when I was 12 where I'd been on this day. 
you never know how the journey's going to go. Newman wrote those words about St. Paul because no saint had such an upheaval as to start as a Pharisee of Pharisees with a PhD in the Jewish school in Jerusalem, then having watched St. Stephen being stoned to death, a horrible sight, a man being killed with stones thrown at him, St. Paul watched quite contented as a boy of 16 and held the clothes of those who threw the stones. And as the Acts of the Apostle tells us, St. Paul fully agreed that Stephen should be stoned. And yet this strange, this Pharisee of Pharisees died in Rome those many years later for Jesus Christ, who he despised when he was a young man. And so Newman, quite rightly, going to the spot where Paul died, said, isn't it strange what to intervene between Paul as a young Pharisee and Paul dying as the leading Christian apostle? If I'd been God, I would have sent St. Paul in Jerusalem where he'd have got on well with the Pharisees instead of asking a Pharisee to work for the Gentiles whom he couldn't stand. But God didn't, and so the apostle who brought us our faith was one who was the most stiff-necked of all the Pharisees. Well, there have been other saints who've had upheavals of that kind. One of them, I would suggest, very much was Cardinal Newman himself. I mention him to you all the time because Cardinal Newman, I live in the house where he was converted. When he, he still hated Rome, but when he tried Methodism and Evangelicalism and it didn't work, and, and he, predestination and being saved, he then scrapped all that as we saw in the first conference of the retreat. He didn't believe any more in sudden being saved. But then he looked, went to the fathers in order to try and find a justification for the Episcopalian church. And the man he chose was Athanasius. And then for 20 years, he was the leading Episcopalian and the founder, in a way, of the Oxford movement. He collected about two or three hundred parsons and others who were the same mind as himself who believed that the Episcopalian Church was the Catholic Church, or part of it. And, of course, then he suddenly couldn't hold that anymore. He suddenly found to his horror that he, in fact, was not a Christian. He'd been reading the Bible, he'd read the Fathers, and then he found that the Fathers were all Catholics. Father Spencer, ahead of him, found the same thing. Spencer was a Church of England minister, and when suddenly he read St. John Chrysostom and the others and said, oh my God, they're all Roman Catholics. They, they never even cottoned on. Well, poor Newman then had left Oxford, and at Littlemore, where I live, three miles out of Oxford, he had leased a piece of ground, and there he settled down. He built 13 little rooms in a place that had belonged to a coaching station. A coach used to run from Oxford to Cambridge every day. When the railroad came in, then the, this was all empty. He took the barn where the horses were fed, he took the grooms' houses and a few horse boxes and joined them all together in the poorest retreat house in the world. It wasn't a retreat house at all. It had 13 rooms, and he lived there for four years as a, first as a, the vicar of the parish, 
And then he took his Roman collar off and became a layman in the Church of England for three or four years. And he collected these young men, all parsons, and they had this little chapel, which I say mass in every day. It's a poor little thing. Oh, teeny-weeny. Half the size of the chapel upstairs here. It had no windows, no blessed sacrament. They didn't believe in the blessed sacrament. It had chairs, and it had a little ledge with a cross with no figure, and two candles that were never lit. And there they made their meditations. They made an eight-day retreat there, twice using St. Ignatius's uh, spiritual exercises, which Newman loved. And Newman tried to, he was trying to build up a kind of monastery, Episcopalian monastery. He couldn't do it. He had that terrible pain that a, one of his young men came to him and said, Mr. Newman, I'd like to go to confession to you, but do you think you can forgive me? And Newman said, no, go to Dr. Pusey, I don't think I can. And suddenly, all that he'd stood for collapsed. Well, after he took four years, some of his more wild, younger men all rushed to Rome in a hell of a hurry, including Father Faber, who became so Catholic that he was almost offensive. <laughs> he walked down the streets of London wearing a soutane and a clerical hat and loved to be spat upon and <laughs> loved to write hymns. Poor Newman was uh, 10 years older and didn't want to be seen at all, a very shy man. Well, I lived there in the same mass every day where Newman was received. Blessed Dominic Barbary, the Italian missionary, who hardly spoke a word of English, turned up one day and Newman knelt down in front of him and said, I want to be a Catholic. He didn't know a single Catholic in England, and Dominic Barbary heard his confession. He had no altar, so Dominic Barbary went to Newman's room and took the great lectern that, on which Newman wrote his book, standing, as he always did. He took this great reader and brought it in, and they put it down like a music stand, and that's the altar still. And Dominic Barbary said Mass. Newman and two of his fellow parsons received First Communion there. Now the altar's still there. That's where I say Mass, without an altar cloth, on the very place where Blessed Dominic Barbary said Mass. Then Newman had to leave little more, and they all went off to the seminary, and they eventually all became priests except one. The extraordinary thing is that Dominic Barbary and Father Spencer, Spencer, a convert of many years before, both went to Belgium for a meeting of the Passionist congregation. And they met the papal nuncio, Monsignor Pecci, a young man, and they both told him, we've received the most remarkable man into the church. And that was all we ever heard. Monsignor Pecci eventually became bishop, and then he went to Viterbo for 30 years, and then became a cardinal, and was elected Leo XIII, when Pius IX died. And when his secretary said to the new pope, what sort of reign are you going to have? Pecci said, wait till you see my list of cardinals. And when the list of cardinals came out, there were archbishops so-and-so and this and this, and Father Newman. Newman was 30 years a priest, and not a monsignor, not a bishop, nothing. And suddenly this old man, when he was 77, suddenly was made a cardinal without being a bishop. And after that, 
all the clouds were lifted. Newman was not accepted in the Anglican Church. He left everybody. He was not accepted in the Catholic Church, mainly by fellow converts. Most odd, the men he'd inspired when he was a parson, when they became Catholic, they became so Roman that they thought he was vaguely a Protestant still. My dear mother, who was 23 when Newman died, my mother wasn't sure whether he was a proper Catholic. And now today he's the only one remembered of the whole age, and he'd not only be a saint, he'll be a doctor of the church. Monsignor Tracy Ellis, your great historian, reckons he comes just after the New Testament um, in authority. And I think it's much the same. So Newman, when he, when he wrote about this little verse about St. Paul having a funny career, if he'd known the story when he was writing that verse, he would have committed suicide. He wrote, Lead kindly light amidst the encircling gloom. I only asked to see the... I don't, I don't, he didn't want to see the distant scene one step enough for me. Little did he know he'd become the leading Episcopalian, a washout as a Catholic, then he'd be a pastor in Birmingham for 30 years, and then a cardinal, and perhaps soon a doctor. He'd have had a heart attack. So funny how, these, how the Holy Ghost leads people. The third person I would mention is dear Mother Seton. I have to mention her because she's your saint. She's buried in Maryland. You can't do more than that. You can live in Maryland, but if you can be buried here, then you surely will have heaven. I went to Staten Island, and there you see her whole family buried there. Her grandfather and grandmother, who was a parson, Dr. Charlton, her father and her mother, her sister and her brother-in-law are all buried in Staten Island in a lovely grave. The only one missing is the one who's a saint. All the rest were devout Episcopalians. There's dear Mother Seton now out at Emmitsburg, squashed into a sort of marble crate. <laughs> she never thought she'd end in a sort of Catholic funeral parlor, but there she is. And her poor husband buried in uh, Leghorn in Italy. Mother Seton's crew's journey through life is extraordinary. You just live it minute by minute. Newman couldn't have had a, St. Paul had nothing like Newman. But then you've got Mother Seton. And Mother Seton, to me, is an outstanding person for two reasons. She, like Newman, suffered this terrible set trial that the faith of her fathers that she loved, she had to give up. Newman, it cost him everything to give up the Church of England because he didn't believe it was the whole story. Poor Mother Seton, Elizabeth Bailey, Betsy Bailey, that's, I love her. Any saint called Betsy seems to me to be an improvement on Athanasius. <laughs> well, Betsy Bailey has two things in her life that move me more than anything else. One was when her husband was dying of TB in Leghorn. He had TB, and she got TB from him, and all her children had TB. He was bleeding to death, and he couldn't go ashore because of quarantine. And so she had to look after him lying on a mattress. And he had no religion. And she wasn't all that pious in those days. And her father was an atheist for a time, a friend of Benjamin Franklin, which is saying something, and, and Alexander Hamilton. They weren't very devout men either, really. And so poor Mother Seton, when, her, when William was dying, 
she taught him about our Lord and she taught him about Jesus as far as she could and then she felt it'll make all the difference um, if he gets communion. Now she was an Episcopalian, she didn't know what to do, she got a chalice, a wine glass, in this lazaretto, quarantine area, she poured wine into it that she borrowed, she got out a book and made up her own prayers, she said a kind of consecration as far as she could over the wine and gave her husband this wine as a kind of communion, that's all, all she knew. What she did know is the need of a liturgy. When you and I have Mass now, uh, Mother Seton, uninstructed, vaguely knew that this would help William. And it did. He died a most edifying death. And just before he was dying, he promised her, if I meet Jesus, I'll squeeze your hand, which he did. So poor Mother Seton came back to New York as a widow, and she, her, her boat was boarded by two of the British men of war getting ready to go to Trafalgar. Her boat came by on the Mediterranean side of Spain, and she was boarded. Lord, uh, Cardinal Newman's first memory as a little boy was of the announcing of the victory of Trafalgar. Mother Seton was on the high seas in a little boat in the same danger. Well, when Mother Seton came back, as you know, all her friends were Episcopalian or nothing, and they all pestered her, and they all, she, she'd been to Italy, she learned how to make the sign of the cross, she'd been terribly moved by our Blessed Mother, her mother died when she was a little baby, so when she got Our Lady, she said, at last I've got what I've always needed, my mother. But she took two or three years to make up her mind. And then the terrible moment came in her life when she was told by her dear friend Henry Hobart, who became Bishop of New York later, Episcopalian, and who came over and had breakfast with Cardinal Newman in Oxford, um, Elizabeth Bailey, Hobart said to her, you must be faithful to the faith of your fathers. And she spent two years worrying about it. She even went to St. Paul's Church in the Battery, which was, she loved, where Henry Hobart used to preach, and she used to sit near the window so she could pray to our, the Blessed Sacrament in St. Peter's Berkeley Street on the other side of the road. She didn't like to leave the Church of England, Episcopalian Church, but she did believe that the Eucharist was in the Catholic Church. And then came the awful day when she set out to make her last communion. Following Mr. Hobart's advice and all her family, uh, they all said to her, you must, not, you must keep to the path taught to you by your parents, which is very sound advice. And so she went there and she, in terror. And when the bishop, the Episcopalian bishop, gave her absolution at the beginning of the communion service, she said, in St. George's Church in New York, she said, it meant nothing to me. But she felt I must go on, so she went to communion for the last time in the Episcopalian church. She wrote down, then trembling, I went to communion half dead with the inward struggle. Because she didn't know what to do, what to believe, terrible position. And then she said, I left the house this morning a Protestant, I returned to it a Catholic, I think. When she got home to her babies, she said, 
I didn't like to give the children a blessing over their food anymore. Just like Newman suddenly didn't like to forgive sins, poor mother Elizabeth Seaton didn't know whether now that she was not in the right church that her blessing counted for anything. These people were heroes. Newman one, St. Paul another, Mother Seaton a third. And she would laugh now when she hears me talking uh, to think that she started in, New in Staten Island, she was kicked out of New York. That's a triumph. That the only saint they had was booted out. <laughs> they chased her out and she came to poor Catholic Maryland. And uh, she not only did everything, all her holiness was here in Baltimore, Packer Street, and then at Emmitsburg, the, the intimate friend of Archbishop Carroll, and there she died. She must laugh now to see the change from her father who spent his life reading Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and she did too when she was young, and then she came down at the end uh, hearing or saying prayers for the first time, living with, under the same roof as the Eucharist. She died in the sacristy at Emmitsburg. She had her bed put there so that she could see the tabernacle. So there are the three extraordinary changes where people made a journey. But there's one more which is very moving to me. and I'm going home to preach on July the 18th on the 400th year of the anniversary of St. Edmund Campion being hanged. Edmund Campion and Thomas More were born in the same area. Edmund Campion's father had a bookshop almost touching St. Paul's Cathedral. Thomas More lived about 70 yards up one of the roads off. Of course, More was the elder. More almost certainly must have known Campion's father because More loved books and Campion's father had a bookshop. St. Edmund Campion was a poor man. His brother was a soldier. He won a scholarship from the Grocers Guild uh, and he went to school. When he went to school, the Blessed Sacrament was still believed in. Henry VIII was still alive and therefore the Catholic Church, though cut off from Rome, still had the seven sacraments. We talk about our kids having troubles today. Campion's troubles those kids at school in that period, he started with the Eucharist. The moment Henry VIII died, he'd have been about 10, the Blessed Sacrament was abolished. Our Lady's statue was thrown into the streets, all the altars were turned round, and suddenly the kids in the middle of their lives found themselves Protestants. So he went to Oxford, he won a scholarship to Oxford. He, or he lived on scholarships, he was very clever, and was a poor man who made his way. Then Bloody Mary, the poor, that poor queen, became queen, and she brought the Blessed Sacrament back again. So for about five years in Oxford, Campion went back to what he'd learnt in the first grade and which he'd given up in the fifth grade. And then when Bloody Mary died after only five years, then Queen Elizabeth arrived. God knows what she thought, and she was an impossible person, Anne Boleyn's daughter. You couldn't have a more dubious pedigree. <laughs> and uh, Henry, the, and she brought back a sort of washed out Protestantism and Campion had to follow that. And then a terrible moment came in Campion's life when it was made law that anyone who was uh, practicing uh, in Oxford or in universities on a scholarship 
had to go to the Protestant church and take the oath of allegiance to the queen and receive communion. So Campion didn't know what he believed. And like Mother Seton, only she, he was even less certain, he not only went and took the oath of allegiance, but he accepted diaconates in the Episcopalian church. And for five years, as a don at Oxford, very popular, very handsome, he practiced as an Episcopalian. But he had a nervous breakdown, practically, as far as they did in those sensible days. He went all white and got irritable and worried, and eventually he fled to Ireland, and then he fled from Ireland to France, and went to the seminary of Douai, and rece was received back into the church. And he was so upset spiritually, like Newman was, this is a great strain in a person's life, that he wouldn't allow the students of Douai to come with him. He didn't want to have anything more to do with England. He left, he let them walk from the north coast of Belgium for one day, the students came with him, then they saw him off, and he walked right across Europe from Belgium to Rome um, on foot. A don from Oxford who knew him well passed him on the way and thought he'd been robbed and offered to lend him money and went back to Oxford and said, we've just seen Edmund Campion, who was the proctor at the time, rushing across Europe. When he got to Rome, he joined the Jesuits, though he'd never heard of them before. There were no Jesuits in England, and the, no Jesuit general was thinking of going to England. He joined the Jesuits because he was an academic, and they had schools. And the Austrian provincial had a battle over him, as he describes, and eventually he went to Bohemia, to Prague, and taught, did his noviceship, and taught boys. He wrote the school play, he loved, he preached occasionally, he had no desire to come back to England at all. He spoke Latin, and therefore all, that was the common language, he loved England, but he never wanted particularly to come back. When he heard of some of the young priests dying and being hanged, he taught them. At Douay, he never said, oh, I feel ashamed. He said, I hope they'll pray for me now. Their poor old master teaching out here, he was quite happy. Then an extraordinary thing happened that the general Je of the Jesuits was persuaded eventually to send Jesuits back to England. And they all unanimously in Rome said, the chap to go back is Campion. He was a friend of the Queen Elizabeth. He was a great man at court. He was a don at Oxford, just like Newman. So they wrote Campion and said, will you go back to England? The last thing he had planned. He would never have joined the Jesuits if he thought England was concerned. If he'd want to go back to England, he would have become a priest at Douai. Well, it's interesting to note that three, two other Jesuits were asked the same thing. Will you go back and risk your life on the English mission? One man, a very nice man indeed, John Gibbons, Father Gibbons, he wrote to the general saying, I'm too afraid. I haven't the courage, but I'd love to work for England, and I'm, that's why it was country, and, I, and he did. He wrote a marvelous book later on the English martyrs, but he didn't want to go back. The second Jesuit asked, Christopher Perkins, said, I'll go back on condition I can take the oath of allegiance to the Queen and go to the Episcopalian services. 
Christopher Perkins left the society, left the church, later became Sir Christopher Perkins, the British ambassador in Copenhagen, and a great man in court. And once when a Jesuit was head up before the Privy Council, he had an ex-Jesuit sitting there on judging him. The third man asked, and the first in time, was Campion, who didn't want to go back at all, and Campion said yes. So he left Bohemia, his mind full of his boys, in, in, in 1579, he got to England with great danger, all in disguise, a year later. He knew he was going to be hanged, he knew he hadn't got a chance, made no bones about it. When they discussed in Rome that they should wear some kind of disguise, and Father Parsons and the others all wore feathers and swords and pretended they were coming back from the army in the Netherlands, Campion said to him, he put on a, a shabby cloak over a piece of buckram, and he said to him who went to England to be hanged, any kind of apparel was enough. That was his most striking statement. He knew quite well he would be hanged. Well, he landed, and for one year, he had the most sensational time. He, no, he became a hero. He was chased all around England. He, he escaped in an amazing way. He wrote this famous book in England, in hiding, and put it on all the benches in Oxford for the prize day, his 10 reasons. It took a year for them to catch him, and they hanged, and eventually he was put, tortured tremendously, talk about Russia, and was hanged. Now, the extraordinary thing, Mother Seton and Cardinal Newman and St. Paul, Campion's different to all the others in this. One year changed his life. Had he stayed in Bohemia, we would have never even heard his name. He was a schoolmaster. One or two dusty old books might have remembered him as a don at Oxford. But just when he said yes, though he didn't want to go back at all and was terrified, his last year made him the greatest of all the martyrs. All, the, all his life and all the things he went through, and he was a very wonderful man, only came to fruition because he lived from 1580 to 1581, which is, gives us hope. If you've got one more year left, you may pull off the same trick. It's the most extraordinary thing. As I remember Malcolm Muggeridge said, if Hitler had died six years earlier, he would have been one of the greatest generals in the history of Europe. And the poor old President Truman, if he'd um, died five or six years, we'd never even heard of him, except in Missouri. Truman only became known by accident. Campion would not have been a saint. We wouldn't even know his name. But that he said yes when the general wrote to him, and said, will you go back? He went back, and with terrible torture and things, he died. His uh, sermon at Tyburn, just before he was hanged on December the 1st, with two others of his friends, he took as his text from 1 Corinthians, we are made a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. So therefore, in our retreat, we've stopped now, we've seen St. Ignatius leave Spain, he only went back once for a short visit in all his life. He spent his whole life writing letters. And Philip Neri left Florence and never went back ever, though it's only 60 miles away. He spent the whole of his life inside Rome. St. Teresa spent all her life 
founding Carmelite convents in Spain. St. Francis Xavier went right out to the Indies. The four of those were canonized on the same day. We see um, St. Athanasius being persecuted and coming all the way from Egypt to Trier and passing on the monastic spirit there. But what I find very moving is these three or four I mentioned today, Campion, St. Elizabeth Seton, Cardinal Newman, and St. Paul, people who had to change their faith with all the terrible pain of losing all their old friends and then not always making new ones, and yet at the same time doing that and the Spirit of God strong enough uh, to make them survive. And so it's on that note that you and I ought to have hope. One, if you've got one year left, you've still got time to become a saint.